I too would like to add my greetings to fellow fathers at Worship Center this morning. Um, happy Father's Day. Um, I got a couple of texts just before I came into the Worship Center this morning to greet some folks before the service began from Dave Chen. And um, Olive has arrived. And so he said in his text that this is the best Father's Day gift ever. So we have a couple of new fathers in our midst. Uh, Kyle's here as well, and we want to congratulate them to just great. We're so thankful to the Lord for blessing us with these young lives, for their moms and dads, and for their involvement in our church family. To live up above with the saints that we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live here below with the saints that we know, well, that's a different story. Can anyone relate to that little poem? You know, maybe not all the time, but some of the time. I'm just hoping that it's not my name that comes to your mind that's causing you the trouble. But seriously, we are part of a church family, the Rock Community Church, that consists of less than perfect people. Every one of us, every single one of us, are less than perfect. And in our less than perfectness, we hurt, frustrate, disappoint, and yes, even at times, get on one another's nerves. Remember that quote that I shared last week from the book by John Neft and Ken Moore? I've shared it a few times. In, from their book, A New Testament Blueprint for the Church, they write, one of the basic skills many of us picked up as children was the ability to major on the minors. Whether it was in comparisons of Christmas presents or how many green peas or beans are on our plates, or who stayed up the latest last night, we specialize in matters of distinction, not unity. And that kind of comparing and competitive spirit will do absolutely nothing for life here below with the saints that we know. In fact, Moore and Neff continue, yet the opposite is stressed in the New Testament, and the opposite is to be true of New Testament saints. We're to specialize in matters of unity, not distinction. I subscribe to a post that comes to my computer on a regular basis titled The Cripplegate. This past week, the post was titled Synchronized Sinners. Listen as I read from the introduction. The Olympic Games is a dignified affair, which is why it is amusing to consider some of the otter sports to have snuck onto the roster for a time only to expose their unsuitability for Olympic attention. In 1900, the Paris Olympic Games saw the inclusion of equestrian long jump, where a horse named Extra Dry made a splash in the news 
by winning the world's first and last longest jump for horses with an overwhelming distance of 20 feet. To fully grasp how insignificant that achievement is, you need to know that it is nearly 10 feet shorter than the world record by a human being. Another sport to make a short-lived appearance at the Olympic level in 1906 was pistol dueling. Like you can imagine how that worked. <laughs> My favorite example is the sport born in 1984 at the LA Games. It was so absurd that TV announcers had to rehearse keeping a straight face while co commentating. I'm referring to the oxymoronic sport of solo synchronized swimming. <laughs> like you laugh, but listen. The event appeared at three Olympic Games before someone was brave en enough to admit that they couldn't see the emperor's new clothes. The solo event makes a mockery of the effort it takes real synchronized swimmers to perfect. They go on to write, but maybe the same can be said of your spiritual life. When you claim to have an individual relationship with Jesus, apart from any union with a church, you're making a mockery of the design God has implemented for his body to function in unity for the benefit of every individual and for the church as a whole. Doing church the way Jesus said to is difficult because it is populated by sinners. But we need to be synchronized sinners who work in unison to give God glory. And in that synergy, we bring him more glory than we could on our own. So how are we doing? As a Christian community called the Rock Community Church, how would you score us on a scale of 1 to 10? 1 being a weekly gathering of autonomous worshipers. 10 being a close-knit interdependent community of believers who are spurring one another on, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but encouraging one another as we see the day approaching. It's worth noting that community is a compound word consisting of common and unity. But the scriptures do not command us or even suggest that we all need to be BFFs, best friends forever. However, we are commanded to love one another. Earlier in John's Gospel, in fact, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 read, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That was John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. And just two chapters later, in John chapter 15, Jesus repeats himself in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then just two verses later, in John chapter 15, verse 17, Jesus says, this I command you, that you love one another. Common unity. The Christian community that God intends us to experience and display in the context of a local church, and specifically the Rock Community Church, is the visible expression of the love that Jesus commanded his followers to have for one another. So let me ask you again, how are we doing? Beloved, I know that it is not easy. In fact, I would like to suggest that, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, all things become possible. And I think it is extremely significant that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after departing that upper room, making his way through the dark and dusty streets of the city of Jerusalem, toward the Garden of Gethsemane, began to pray. His disciples, those remaining 11, were with him. Those who he had earlier designated as apostles, sent ones, the ones who would carry his message forward following his imminent departure. They heard Jesus. They were there. And they heard him pray first for himself, and then pray for them before he prayed for all those who will believe as a result of their message. What is most interesting is that Jesus prayed for our oneness, our common unity, and that, in my mind, would suggest that at least two things. First of all, the kind of unity that Jesus was praying for, that he envisioned for future believers, was going to be difficult. It will be countercultural. And folks, our own experiences bear witness to that in our homes, our marriages, our community, our country, global relationships. Maintaining common unity is tough. It's difficult. 
And relational unity continues to be a challenge to this very day. Our humanity continues to get in the way. And secondly, this kind of unity requires God's help. Think about it. Of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for as he made his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, the one thing that comes to his mind is that they may all be one. This morning we're going to be focusing on just four verses in John chapter, 14, John chapter 17. And these verses record Jesus' prayer for the oneness of future believers while they live here below with the saints that they know. Next week we'll finish the chapter and there Jesus prays for unity up above with the saints that we love. But here, in these four verses, Jesus' prayer for future believers while living here below with the saints that they know contains two implications. Two implications that will encourage us to promote and preserve the oneness for which Jesus prayed as he made that walk. If you're able, I would invite you to stand with me for the reading from God's Word. Turn to John chapter 17. And notice verse 20. Verse 20 of John chapter 17. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, as the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you for a church family that holds to a high view of Scripture. We believe that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and supernaturally preserved by you. It is authoritative in all that it teaches, providing us with all that we need to live lives that please you and will glorify your name. We pause to acknowledge our need and invite your Holy Spirit who guided the original authors so that they wrote exactly what you wanted to reveal about your person, 
plans, purposes, and perspectives. Now may that same spirit guide our study of this text, illumine our minds so that we can understand, then give us the courage and strength to live accordingly. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Becoming synchronized sinners. You know, as I diagrammed these four verses this past week, I noticed that verses 20 and 21 are parallel to verses 22 and 23. Did you notice that? Look at them again. They say much the same thing, with very few, just a minor exceptions. In fact, those exceptions are significant because they stand out, they, they grab our attention. But the overall emphasis of this portion of Jesus' prayer is clearly the oneness or unity of those who would believe in him. You may want to take your pen or highlighter and underline the phrase that all of them may be one at the beginning of verse 21. And then in the middle of verse 22, that they may be one. And you may even include the phrase in verse 23, it's the same Greek word, that they may be perfected in unity or in oneness. The NIV reads, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Oh, and yes, don't forget verse 11. Look back at verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. Jesus had already prayed specifically for the oneness of the remaining 11 disciples. Clearly, this oneness or this unity was foremost in Jesus' mind as he looked towards the future. It was paramount. It was to be priority number one. And as a result, when he paused to pray, it became part of his expression in that prayer. What does that imply? Implication number one. Becoming synchronized sinners is a God thing. It's divine. Supernatural. Apart from God's involvement, this kind of unity for which Jesus prayed on our behalf is unattainable. It will remain just beyond our reach and in these four verses, we will discover three foundational prerequisites, one simile, and two enablements. 
that indicate becoming synchronized swimmers, swimmers, sinners, is a God thing. First of all, let's look at these three foundational prerequisites that indicate the unity for which Jesus was praying is a God thing. In other words, this oneness is not something you and I, or even we, can create apart from God's involvement. It is rooted in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20. For those who would believe in him. Jesus is specifically asking for those who will believe in him. So belief is a foundational prerequisite. John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13 reads, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They're reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Belief in him means that you believe Jesus is who he claimed to be, did what the scriptures say he did, and will do what he promised he will do. Those who believe in him have acknowledged that they are sinners and as such are separated from God. But they recognize that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a horrible death to pay the price for their sin. And on that basis, they ask for forgiveness. Trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Believing that what he did, he did for us. His accomplishment and his accomplishment alone will restore our broken relationship toward God. That describes you. If you've done that, then Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 is a prayer for you. And it's a prayer for me. And it's a prayer for all those who will believe in him, past, present, and future. Belief is a foundational prerequisite that indicates that this oneness for which Jesus prayed is a God thing. And notice verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. Whose word? Who is the there? We've already mentioned it. It's the 11 remaining disciples. Those who had been designated by Jesus himself as apostles, sent ones. Turn back with me to Jesus' promise made to these men while still in the upper room in John chapter 14. And look at verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, in verse 16 of John chapter 14, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. Drop down to 
verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the message delivered by these 11 men will in fact be what they heard Jesus say and teach over the past two, two and a half years of his public ministry. And Jesus himself claimed in John chapter 12, verse 49, that the Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And those are the things that the Spirit of God was going to bring to their mind. So the disciples, these 11 men, would be enabled by the Holy Spirit to pass on the Word of God as first presented by Jesus himself. Now go back to John chapter 17 and look at verse 17. Jesus is asking the Father, not on our behalf, but on behalf of these 11 men, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This unity that Jesus prayed for rests on hearing and assimilating God's word into our lives. The truth, God's word, is foundational, is a foundational prerequisite that indicates that this oneness for which Jesus was praying is a God thing. Verse 20 begins with the third. I do not ask in Jesus' prayer. He says that phrase three times. Verse 9, it was, I do not ask on behalf of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. It's referring to the 11 remaining disciples. Here in verse 20, I do not ask on, the, on behalf of these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus was not asking just on behalf of the 11 remaining disciples, but he's asking on behalf of those who will believe as a result of their message. Following his departure, <coughs> beloved, we believe, you and I believe, because of the message that was first passed on by these 11 disciples. But the point is, Jesus is asking the Father to ensure that all future believers would be one. Why would he make that appeal if he thought that we could somehow orchestrate this kind of unity or oneness apart from God's involvement? He thought we could do it on our own. Jesus prayed for unity on our behalf because he knew. He knew it would require God's help. Apart from God, we can't do it. But with him, with God, with the Lord God Almighty, 
the omnipotent one, the all-powerful God, with him, seemingly impossible realities become possible. Even oneness, even unity among less than perfect believers. Unity among saints here below. God's help is a foundational prerequisite. It implies that this oneness for which Jesus prayed is a God thing. Belief, the truth, word of God, and God's help are absolute essentials if we ever hope to become synchronized sinners. We cannot fabricate this kind of unity in our own strength and ingenuity. The oneness for which Jesus was making an appeal on our behalf was a supernatural oneness. Apart from God, oneness is just temporary. Pseudo-community. It's a counterfeit unity. As fake as the news, according to our famous president south of the border. Three foundational prerequisites. Belief, the truth, God's word, and God's help implies that this unity for which Jesus was praying is a God thing. And so does the simile, the one simile we find in this these four verses. Webster's Dictionary defines simile as a figure of speech comparing two unlike things that is often introduced with like or as. Look first at the first part of verse 21. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now the parallel counterpart to that is found in verse, at the end of verse 22 and even into the beginning of verse 23. Just as we are one, I in them and you in me. That they may be one like the father-son relationship. That's got to blow our mind a little bit. Let me ask you, how close are the three members of the Trinity? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, existing in perfect community, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Listen to the same verse as I read it from the New Living Translation. 
agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. I think that would describe the relationship between the persons in the Trinity. That verse is actually what the Apostle Paul prayed for believers in the church in Philippi. It provides a great description of oneness. The kind of oneness displayed in our three-in-one triune God. This kind of relational intimacy, transparency, and interpersonal interdependence is supernatural. It suggests that the God who resides in believers, according to John chapter 14, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode in him. The God who makes his abode in those who believe provides the gravitational pull so that we may be perfected in unity. John chapter 17, verse 23. The simile that they may be one like the father and son relationship indicates that this oneness for which Jesus prayed on our behalf is a God thing. And so, by the way, does the two enablements. The first is Jesus' prayer. The prayer itself. In John chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus encouraged his disciples with these words. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. It will be given to you or done for you. How much more so when the word that became flesh and dwelt among us makes an appeal to the Father on our behalf that they may, be, may all be one verse 21, that they may be one, verse 22. Jesus' prayer on our behalf enables us to be perfected in unity. But notice the first part of verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given them. The, ex the second enablement is Jesus' glory. But it's interesting. What is Jesus' glory? All kinds of debate around this phrase. Biblical scholars cannot seem to agree on what the glory is that Jesus was referring to, that he was sharing with these believers. When speaking of the glory of God, the scriptures are often referring to the character or some kind of manifestation of the person of God. John chapter 1, verse 14, same book that we're reading from, referring to Jesus, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld its glory. Glory is the only begotten of God, full of grace 
and truth. Perhaps it is best to see the glory that Jesus shares with believers as similar to what he referred to earlier in his prayer. Look back at verses 4 and 6. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now notice verse 6. I have manifest your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So when believers understand and believe the revelation of God that Jesus brought, they become partakers in his glory. Jesus' prayer and Jesus' glory indicate that this oneness for which Jesus prayed on our behalf is a God thing. Three foundational prerequisites, one simile, and two enablements all suggest that this oneness for which Jesus was praying is a God thing. You and I can't create this kind of unity apart from God's involvement. It's impossible. But just because we can't create it does not mean that we can't protect and promote it. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 reads, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Did you catch that list? Humble, gentle, patient, making allowance for one another because of your love. In other words, exercising grace, being graceful, extending grace to one another. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, a verse that many of us have memorized. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling together, some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Stimulate one another to love and good works. Show up week after week. Encourage one another. Just because we can't create it doesn't mean that we can't invite it, facilitate it, promote it, and protect this kind of oneness and unity for which Jesus prayed on our behalf. You know that last phrase, one another? That is found 59 times in our New Testaments makes quite a study. All practical ways in which we can promote and protect unity. Things like love one another, spur one another on, encourage one another, forgive one another, 
be devoted to one another, honor one another, serve one another, and the list goes on and on and on. All practical suggestions of how we as individuals can invite, facilitate, promote, and protect the unity that, is that comes from a restored relationship with God. Becoming synchronized swim, swim, sinners, not swimmers. Wow. I should mention, there is a shortcoming in this whole illustration of synchronized sinners. Jesus not suggesting, he's not suggesting that the desired outcome is that we all become like Siamese twins so that we walk and talk and look identical. That's not what he's suggesting. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses a body metaphor in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to describe what the New Testament church should really be like. He says the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one body. So it is with the body of Christ. Then he goes on and talks about the ear and the nose and how they're different and yet they're still part of one body. Verse 15, but now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. He's brought us together. This is his doing. Verse 25, so that there may be no division in the body but that its members may have the same care for one another. The synchronized sinners for which Jesus prayed have the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, are intent on one purpose, to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to our second implication. Implication number two, becoming synchronized sinners is never intended to be an end in and of itself. You know, we could become quite a nice little holy huddle where you affirm me and I affirm you and we just go through life enjoying one another's company. Notice the two statements. They are hard to miss. At the end of verse 21, two purpose statements. So that the world may believe that you sent me. End of verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. The world is all that stands opposed to the plans and purposes of God. It's for those, their benefit. They are the primary beneficiaries, that's the intention, of our getting our act together, being united. Unbelievers will have an opportunity to see something that is undeniable 
and supernatural. It's a God thing, remember? The world may scoff at our submission to an ancient book. Irrelevant. My goodness. Our belief in an invisible God and our conviction of absolute truth. But they will not be able to deny the visible expression of the love that we are commanded to have for one another. This visible expression of brotherly and sisterly love a oneness among the people who are otherwise incredibly diverse, very, very different in a world filled with people who long to belong, to be loved, to be nurtured, to be valued. The church is called to enable and provide a glimpse of heaven. A life with sinners up above. Just a glimpse. We're living here below with the saints that we know is characterized by a supernatural oneness. According to the Apostle Paul, as new creatures in Christ, it's another way of saying believers, God has entrusted each and every one of us with the ministry of reconciliation. That's you, 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 and me. No one escapes. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, it reads, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. The lack of the oneness or unity for which Jesus prayed here in John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23, will only serve to silence the appeal to come back to God. It will undermine our personal confidence in going out and sharing that message with others, and it will discredit the gospel in the eyes of unbelievers. Let me just close by reading Psalm 133. 
The psalmist, in some very poetic language, writes this. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And then he uses a couple of metaphors that we have no idea what he's talking about. He said it is like, actually it's a simile, the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. And you and I have no idea, but the psalmist was writing to the nation of Israel. And they would hear those words and reflect back in their mind's eye and remember the first ever anointing of the high priest who would represent them as a nation before their God. It's a huge ceremony. When he was anointed with special anointing oil. The second simile. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. You've never been to Israel, probably. Some of you may have. But it's a dry and arid land. Mount Aaron rises to some 18,000 feet from the lowest point at the Mediterranean Sea. And around that mountain, clouds drop dew on a habitual basis. And so there's luxurious vegetation growing around the base of Mount Hermon. And notice the last phrase, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Life, the way God intended it to be lived. For you and for all those who are out there who are needing, desperately needing, the message of reconciliation. Let's become the synchronized sinners that Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. Father, we come asking as those who are believing and for those who will believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, through the words that have been passed on to us by these 11 men. May all who find their way to the Rock Community Church, 1140 Nellis Street, Woodstock, Ontario, Canada, N4T1N4, be one, united, even as you and Jesus are one, so that the world, all those who do not believe, may believe that you sent Jesus. May we be perfected in unity. Enable us to humble ourselves, to show up week after week, not just for ourselves or what we can get out of these services, these times together, but for the interests and benefit of others. Father, this is hard. May we, each one, be preservers and promoters of the oneness for which, for which Jesus prayed. By the power of your spirit for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.